was on one fine March morning when I bid New Orleans adieu. And I was on the road to Jackson Town, my fortunes to renew. I cursed all foreign money, no credit could I gain, which filled my This is Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver. My guest today is uh, Josh Newfeld. Did I get it right? Yes. Awesome. And your latest collection is the one time, Once Upon a Time webcomic uh, AD New Orleans After the Deluge. And 
Um, it's fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Um, it seems like a bit of an undertaking to get such uh, careful, accurate stories without uh, kind of over-embellishing things. Well, um, <clears throat> in this case, I, w- I had the good fortune, I, if I could say that, that the subject matter was so um, extreme and, and intense and dramatic that there was no need for embellishing anything. And, um, you know, I, all my job was, was simple in that I just had to find the, the right people who'd be willing to have their stories told, interview them, um, and uh, write and draw their adventures. <laughs> <laughs> You make it sound like a superhero thing. <laughs> the adventures of the, the survivors. Yeah. Um, why don't first actually we jump into who you are and kind of work up to what this book stands for you as far as, like, a creative piece within itself. Okay. Um, what is What was your interest in comics? What drew you into comics? Well, um, let's see. It's, it was so long ago that it's hard to remember. But, uh, I, I mean, I've been reading comics literally my whole life. I can't remember the first time I picked up a comic. It was just always part of uh, my life. But I would say that my earliest influences were probably Hergé's Tintin comics and Goscinny and Uderzo's Asterix comics, um, which, when I was growing up in the 70s in America, were actually pretty rare and hard to find. But my mom who was an artist and um, would often travel abroad, especially to Europe, would always bring me back a, one of those comics, a Tintin or an Asterix, or sometimes both. And uh, I just grew up reading those and really loving those. And then later I got exposed to superhero comics and, you know, was really into sort of the typical stuff as a kid, Superman and Batman, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, that kind of stuff. What kind of uh, artwork does your mother do? My mom's a visual artist too. She's uh, she's sort of a mixture of kind of like all of the contemporary um, sort of uh, intellectual and and political art that goes on. So she does she does photography, she does video, she's done performance, installation, all sorts of different things. She's actually very well known amongst the uh, the literati <laughs> who are really into that kind of stuff. Wow, I had no idea. Her name is Martha Rossler, R-O-S-L-E-R. So she's a different last name than me. Mm-hmm. So uh, keen, keen listeners can Google that. Yes. Now, when did you decide that comics was your vocation, given your uh, mother's more um, kind of direct high art, high art versus low art issue? I, I wasn't going to say high, <laughs> high, low. I, I do not use those terms. I was going to say more directly applied. Right. Um, I guess, uh, you know, again, it was just something that I did. I, I figured that either I'd be a, a, a professional baseball player or a um, <laughs> comic book artist, and the baseball thing really didn't work out. I, I figured that out early on in Little League when I couldn't hit the curveball. So um, I stuck to comics, and I actually, when uh, I, I lived in a lot of different places in my life because of my mom and, and her studies and then and moving around because of different jobs. So we lived in Southern California for a long time, and then I lived in the San Francisco area, and actually we spent um, one uh, six or nine month period in Vancouver, where oh, I nice. where I learned how to play hockey and um, had a really great time. I really liked it there when I was a kid. But um, do you remember where in Vancouver? In what neighborhood? Yeah. No, I don't. Unfortunately. Did you go to a school? I did. I went to what grade was I in at that point? I think I was in seventh grade, and I think I did one semester at the school, and I can't remember the name of it. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I went to so many different schools in my childhood that, that it's all a blur now. Um, <laughs> but uh, eventually I made my way out to New York City um, just in time for high school, and the high school I went to was called Music and Art High School, and it's now called LaGuardia because we merged with another school sort of during my time there. But in any case, there were a number of other kids who were drawing comics there, and they took it really seriously, and a bunch of us, um, ended up uh, forming our own little club and, you know, uh, joining up and collaborating together. So some kids were writers, some kids were pencilers, some were inkers. And um, I did a bunch of comics there. We self-published them, Xeroxed them, handed them out to our friends and family. And another one of my buddies from high school actually became a professional cartoonist as well, Dean Haspiel. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
Dean and I have both uh, been working in this field for a long time and are both illustrators for Harvey Picard now on American Splendor. The fantastic Harvey. That's right. Now, was this the same high school that years ago those EC guys went to? Do you know those, about that? Uh, the e- the guys from EC? Yeah, that like Will Elder and uh, Elja Figs. I know it was like a, some kind of like artist. It might have been. There, there were a couple of art schools in New York um, back in the 50s and in that year, 40s, 50s, 60s. There was also the High School of Art and Design, which I know a number of cartoonists went to. So it's possible they might have gone there um, or they might have gone to music and art back in the day, but I'm not... Uh, I'm not up on all the alumni relationships. <laughs> well, it's probably about 70 years ago, so... I yeah, think exactly. That's, uh, <laughs> I know a, a lot of them ended up teaching or going to college at School of Visual Arts, which is still a, a real hotbed of of good cartoonists, uh, you know, especially in the alternative and literary end of the comics. Is spectrum. that where you went for your art school? No, I actually didn't go to art school for college. I, I um, at that point... Who needs it? Well, at that point, I was starting to kind of lose a little bit of interest in the type of comics I was doing at that point because I didn't know about Harvey Picar and and uh, Love and Rockets and Dan Klaus and people like that. So I was still kind of running out the string on superhero and genre stuff and just, to be totally honest, losing interest in it. And I figured that it would um, be smarter to you know get a fully rounded liberal arts education when I went to college and sort of do comics on the side and, and see where it took me if anywhere. Um, So I ended up going to Oberlin College out in Ohio and uh, was an art history major. And I got to study my mom in in art history class, so (laughs) that was kind of bringing things full circle. (laughs) That sounds odd. It was. It was definitely a a cool way to meet girls, though. You know, they were very impressed with that. (laughs) The ultimate name dropping, eh? Exactly. Now, when did you revisit comics and kind of find what you wanted to do with it? Um, that would have been <clears throat> after I graduated. I moved back to New York, um, did a couple of different jobs, and ended up meeting um, the woman who I'm now married to. And uh, she and I went, um, we left New York after about a year living together and, and left everything behind, chucked everything, and took off, um, bought a one way ticket to Hong Kong. <laughs> and we were going to travel around the world and maybe teach English, and we had all these 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 visions and plans. And I mean, actually, we we did end up doing a lot of that, but we didn't stay in Asia for very long. We traveled, we backpacked around Southeast Asia for about three or four months, and then we ended up getting a flight to the Czech Republic, which at that point was just emerging from the sort of communist era. Yeah. And there was a lot of opportunities for English-speaking people there, and. Uh, we went there, and um, I started getting into alternative comics while I was out there, meeting some other Americans and English people and Canadians and whoever who sort of started to tell me about what was going on in, in the exciting world of independent black-and-white comics, which is, at what point was the early 90s. I've heard that the Czech Republic actually had some really fascinating comics itself. I interviewed really? someone last year, I think it was, early Interesting. This year, who was telling me about getting packages and stuff from there. That's good to hear, because when we were there, there really wasn't much of a culture for comics at all. There were, you know, sort of a couple of things, more like newspaper strips, I guess, that ran in some of the papers there, and <clears throat> some stuff that was more like uh, boys' adventures kind of things, but nothing really in the in the same vein of what I am doing now. I'll, I'll find I'll find out when the, where this was and get yeah, information. Yeah, I'd like to know about it. It's really fascinating stuff. That Not that I can read Czech. It's one of the hardest languages. <laughs> <laughs> but I could maybe uh, muddle my way through it. Uh, something about, you know, the whole point of comics is the visual narrative, exactly. right? Exactly. So it helps a lot. You know, and actually that's something I've noticed in this work. It's not largely dependent on on the dialogue as much as it is as the... Uh, the motion within the comic, I guess, mm-hmm. is what I'm looking for. So, um, was Harvey the big push for you to do real stories, like real? Yeah, not that that was definitely my my bridge. When I when we finally made our way back to the states, we moved back to Chicago, um, and uh, one of the first things that I happened across when I was walking around our new neighborhood in Chicago was this great underground comic store called Quimby's. 
that had all sorts of really interesting and exciting and challenging type of comics. You know, Peter Bagg stuff and Chris Ware was just turning out Dan Klaus's work, Eight Ball, and of course American Splendor. And <clears throat> I was really drawn to American Splendor for a couple reasons. One was that here was a guy who was showing me that you could, you know, write comics that were not fiction and were not um, sort of just outrageous humor or whatever, but regular stories about your everyday life, which was something I could connect to because I couldn't write fiction. I just didn't have that, uh, you know, other than writing superhero stuff, which I never really liked doing anyways, uh, I, I was really drawn to the idea of just um, real people and their real experiences, and Harvey just is the master of that. And the other great thing about his stuff is that he didn't draw it himself. He needed artists, so <laughs> here was a perfect opportunity, and, and in my... Um, misguided uh, confidence, self-confidence. I sent him some samples of some stuff that I had done in Prague and basically said in the letter, hey, I'm as good as any of these chumps that you have drawing for you, so why don't you give me a chance to do this? And um, I didn't hear from him for a while, and then, believe it or not, he actually called me up out of the blue and uh, sort of quizzed me and made sure I was good people and then said, yeah, you know, like, I'd like to work with you. We'll see what happens. And Eventually, he gave me a one-page story to work on, and then like a three-pager, and then, you know, longer and longer pieces after that until it sort of became a regular thing between us. Whenever he was uh, publishing a new issue of American Splendor, I would usually have a piece in it. Nice. Yeah. He's, a, he's done a lot of good for a lot of folks. <coughs> he has. I mean, just in his example alone of, of uh, storytelling. Mm-hmm. Not to mention all the young punks like myself that he's given a, ch- a shot to, uh, to illustrate his <laughs> stories. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a long list. I've uh, talked to Ed Piscor yeah. a couple of years ago, and uh, he, you know, here, there's a young guy who... I remember when Harvey <coughs> first got some of Ed's stuff and actually called me and Dean, both of us, to ask us what we thought of his stuff and whether he should use them or not, and Ed also emailed uh, Dean and I and, you know, was asking what should he do to get in on Harvey's good side and all that. So yeah, we go way back with Ed. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> no, he's uh, he's fantastic and uh, he's quite a character. I like it a lot. Yeah, a lot of lot of output. He's a uh, quick, quick, yeah, quick, quick illustrator. The fast hand.
let's jump right into your your latest collection um, about the experience of the Hurricane Katrina, um, but it's not like direct, like everyone, you know, within the hurricane, but more how different communities were affected, I guess. Mm-hmm. What was your interest in starting that story? Well, um, personally it came about because I ended up volunteering with the American Red Cross after Hurricane Katrina, pretty shortly after the hurricane. I was really moved by um, what I saw down there, you know, the news footage, especially of people just totally abandoned in the city to the flooding and, and at, at, the sh- at the shelters like the convention center and the Superdome and just the complete, like, um, just falling apart of the of the authorities ability to help anybody and I was I was very upset by that and and uh, saddened and I think there was also some residual feelings of helplessness that had um, from living in New York after 9-11 happened and and feeling again helpless and powerless so <clears throat> what I I just ended up volunteering with the Red Cross and then I pursued very diligently you know what what would it take to get trained in disaster response to be able to get deployed down there to help Mm-hmm. And um, I did that, and I did get deployed, and I actually became a, a volunteer down in Biloxi, Mississippi, which is about 90 miles outside of New Orleans. So I didn't work directly in New Orleans, but fairly close by. Um, and I worked down there in Biloxi for about a month, basically driving around areas that had been really hit hard by the storm and, and delivering hot meals to people in those neighborhoods. Um, and I took a lot of pictures, and I talked to a lot of people, and really sort of immersed myself in the post-Katrina uh, world, and also during the one day off that we had during our deployment, we went, um, me and a bunch of Red Cross buddies drove into New Orleans and drove around basically the, the really devastated areas, and this was just after the floodwaters had receded and the water had been pumped out, but nobody was back living there yet, so... It was just this eerie ghost town that we drove around. We could see all the watermarks on the sides of the buildings and the codes that had been um, scrawled on the buildings by the various search teams that were going through to try to um, free or or find bodies and Mm -hmm. gruesome things like that. So that was a really powerful experience, and I blogged about it the whole time I was down there. And... Um, I had a lot of really interesting conversations on my blog about my experiences. And um, anyway, eventually I collected all of that material from my blog and I self-published a little zine, basically. Uh, you know, not without, with, with no comics art in it, just, um, just words and some photos that I took. And I distributed that mainly to the people who had commented on the blog or people I had written about or other Red Cross members. But one of the copies of the uh, zine came into the hands of uh, Larry Smith, the editor of Smith Magazine, which is an online storytelling site that focuses on personal stories and is often tries to find stories that have a large impact, but you can learn about them through the voices of regular people. And Larry suggested to me, knowing you know my background as a cartoonist and knowing my experience in Katrina, why don't we do a a comic book treatment of the of the Hurricane Katrina story. So that was kind of the origin of the whole thing. There's something odd in just kind of jumped out at me when you're talking about going and looking at the um, the devastation. It's like this odd tourist mm-hmm. type thing. It's become almost like it's like this like let's go on a tour of Auschwitz. Like yeah this mix of, like, awe and despair? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I admit that Larry and I, when we were down in New Orleans, when we were doing our initial research, we actually took one of those official tours now they have that go through the Ninth Ward and and Gentilly and some of the other areas that were really flooded. And, you know, there were some mixed feelings on our part, feeling like, are we just going and gaping, you know, at devastation as if it's... Uh, going to, you know, on a Walt Disney ride or something. Exactly. But um, I think that it really depends on how the tour is run and what the point of it is, and I felt like the tour we went on was really um, sensitive to those issues and talked a lot about 
It was a historic. Basically, it was a historical tour of something that you could actually be in the middle of it while you were doing it, and it seems hard to um, complain about that. You know, it, it it was an experience that I would bet everybody who was on that tour would never forget, and you couldn't just laugh and and uh, chuckle, you know, and sort of uh, just have a good time while, while you were doing it. It was sobering and and a, a really um, powerful way to communicate what it was like for the people who lived there. And we certainly didn't drive through areas where people were still living and stop and point at them or anything yeah. like that. So uh, I found it really helpful, and um, I feel like it's almost another mode of, of education about this experience, just like I feel like hopefully AD is a mode of education about this. You know, there's magazine articles, there's documentaries, there's radio programs, there's tours, and all of these have as their goal to sort of communicate to people who didn't experience it what it was like to live through that period. It's the fine line between exploitation and education. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully, erring on the side of education. Yeah, no, it sounds it sounds like uh, a a good experience. Yeah, a positive. I don't even know what the right word is to say right now. Um, what do you feel are some of the overbearing issues that kind of need discussing with creating a work like this? Um, need discussing in what way? Like in, in kind of like keeping this as part of kind of a collective consciousness instead of uh-huh. letting it fall to the wayside. I mean, you know, that, that, that I see that as kind of the reason of the book is kind of going, yeah. this is the experience. So what what do you see some like points? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's very much it. I think I was aware even at the time that I started the project, which was more than a year after the actual hurricane, that this was an event that was already starting to fade into um, the haze or the fog of of history. And you know, I don't not exactly sure what it's like in Canada, but in America, people are uh, uh, their their memories are very short, and there's always some new thing in the news cycle the death of a celebrity or <laughs> a new election or whatever that, that obscures and, and pushes to the back of your mind some of the maybe more important things that are going on. Mm-hmm. And the story of Katrina was definitely very much still going on at the point that we started doing this project um, in the sense that the city was in, still in really bad shape. It was still rebuilding. There were many people who were... Uh, Displaced and maybe weren't going to be able to come back home. And um, what was the future of the city going to be? Uh, what was the racial dynamic of it going to be? It had changed so much after the hurricane because so many of the the um, places that were flooded were poor African American areas where the people were evacuated and not able to return. So there are a lot of really important issues. And one of my goals with doing the book was very much to sort of through the voices of the different characters that I chose, have them discuss some of those things moving forward. So it wasn't going to be just about the maybe three days of the storm and the flooding, but, you know, going forward years, months and years into towards the present, you know, talking about all of these um, ongoing issues with Katrina. It's, well, the the book, it seems like, the the hurricane itself isn't the story as much as the after effects of it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 a lot of both. But but you're right that the 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 ongoing issue, the issue that still reverberates with us today, would be the after effects of Katrina, and you know what the untold story of what is New Orleans going to become. And uh, I think that I at least make you know, a connection with that and leave those questions open. And the, the book ends with the line from one of the characters saying, we're not all home yet. And uh, there's a picture of uh, a FEMA trailer. In f- Sorry, th- that's my call waiting. I'll just ignore it. <laughs> there's a picture of a uh, FEMA trailer in someone's front yard. And that's, you know, that's... I don't know if there are that many FEMA trailers left anymore, um, but there's still many people who have yet to move back in. And who knows whether they ever will. Well, that was the uh, the kind of, I guess, the final chapter. I mean, the perfect phrase you used for it was the diaspora. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that just describes it. I mean, here, people, like, massive, massive displacement 
place. Exactly. Like, that was the thing I'm watching. Like, in Canada, we had really no idea how this could even happen. And then I'm watching the mm-hmm. Spike Lee documentary where they're showing people just being shipped off into different cities. And it's just like... I know. <laughs> I know. And many of those people are still in those cities. You know, some of them have just... Uh, given up on being able to go back home um, and have settled down in these places that might have seemed like they were on the on the moon when they first got there. I mean, it, it, it's really hard for us to imagine, but if you were, you know, maybe, say, an African-American kid who grew up in the Ninth Ward, um, that was a really tight-knit community, and you might never have left that neighborhood, let mm-hmm. alone left New Orleans in, your, in most of your life, and then to be, you know, thrown onto an airplane and end up in, uh, you know, rural Wisconsin. <laughs> it's just about as far... That first winter. Yeah, yeah. The, just the, the, the environmental change and then the culture shock alone, I think, would be enough to really throw you off kilter for a long time. I honestly don't think we know quite yet what, how this is going to, what the long-term effects are. Yeah, well I, well, I was just back in New Orleans about three weeks ago on part of my book tour for AD, and um, one of the most sobering experiences was driving through the Ninth Ward um, and just seeing how it's so, still completely r- ravaged. You know, I mean, they're, they're no more wrecked and sagging homes. They've cleared those away, but basically there's just empty lots everywhere mm-hmm. you look and on every block. There's just overgrown weeds everywhere and vegetation taking over, but there's only maybe one, two, three, four houses on every block that, that are actually occupied, and they're, they don't even have, you know, constant electricity or sewage service. I mean, this is, like you're saying, this is America. This is the first <laughs> world. <laughs> How could this happen? This is one of our, our jewels of a city in this country, and it's just sort of rotting away. It's quite an interesting analogy talking about kind of nature taking back in a way too yeah well that's really that's uh, in my travels and in my backpacking we we were in places like in uh, Indonesia or in the jungles of Mexico where you would find these ancient cities and their ancient temples and they would be all overgrown and the jungle had sort of taken them back and there was something romantic and exotic about all that but uh, you know that, that was talking about thing, you know civilizations that were hundreds or even thousands of years old but when you go back to New Orleans and you drive around and you see some of the same thing that's only four years ago and this is still a place where people live and have their lives it's, it doesn't have that same romance to it no it, it, it definitely gives a new light and an understanding other things yeah, yeah. This time I'm walking to New Orleans. I'm walking to New Orleans. I'm gonna need to parachute when I get through walking the blues. When I get back to New Orleans. Suitcase in my hand. Now ain't that a shame? I'm leaving here today. Yes, I'm going back home to stay. Yes, I'm walking to New Orleans. You used to be my heart.
tell me about the folks involved in the, the story, the uh, the people okay. you met. Do you want to know a little bit about each of them or how I met them? or How you met them, because they're all, it's very diverse. Yeah. Like, none of them are the same. No, no, no. We Yeah, we that was one of the sort of um, parameters from the beginning is that Larry Smith and I wanted very much to tell this story from as sort of wide a demographic range as possible and, and have a lot of different experiences, a lot of different types of voices that would contribute to the story. So we cast a really wide net and tried to find old people, young people, gay, straight, black, white, male, female, everything. Um, and considering there's only seven people's voices in this book, I think we did a pretty good job of that. Um, the other thing that was really important to me was that I wanted, there, there were certain stories that were so archetypal that had come out of Katrina that at least to me were vital to be told. So I knew that I wanted to have somebody who had survived the flooding in one way or another and had to deal with the water keep rising and rising and rising and how they dealt with that. And I wanted to have someone who had to confront the loss of all of their possessions because mm-hmm. that was something that was incredibly resonant for me and something that I was that I could connect to and sort of have thought about a lot in my life because I have lots of comics and lots of books and art, old art and DVDs and all of those kinds of things. Um, and uh, then I very much wanted to have someone who had um, suffered through the experience at the Superdome or at the convention center because sort of from a political angle there were a lot of stories um, and basically just complete fabrications about what happened at the Superdome Mm -hmm. and the convention center in the first few days after the storm and there were all these stories about roving gangs that were raping children and murdering each other and shooting and killing everything and basically that was that was all made up and uh I, you know, I think that there was obviously a racial component to that and uh, a lot of fears by white people and by the media of sort of this idea of, of what happens in an urban area when chaos reigns, you know. And um, so one of the characters, Denise, who's actually African-American herself, she was at the convention center and saw what really went on there. And I heard her talking about her experiences on a radio show, and she basically you know, rebutted all of those claims and said what really happened. And the irony was that actually it was the opposite, that the people there did as best as they could to fend for themselves in a in a lawful and society-minded manner, <laughs> despite the fact that the authorities were, were completely absent and had abandoned them, and that the police, when they would come through, instead of delivering water, were pointing their guns at them. Yeah. So her story was really powerful and, and in a lot of ways to me is the heart of AD and kind of what I wanted to say in this book um, so that was uh, that's sort of a convoluted way of talking a little bit about some of the characters and I found them basically the way that journalists I think find their subjects you know by using connections um, talking to people in the area reading a lot of other uh, journalistic output from that um, from that period and friends of friends, et cetera, et cetera, and found people through all sorts of different ways, from, like I said, the radio program to reading about one kid in my college alumni magazine to another one being a relative of a friend of mine up here in New York, and so on and so forth, until we sort of had a a collection of people that I felt as a storyteller was sort of the right number of people, you know, not too few and not too many. Yeah, well, when you have too many, it gets kind of... You, it just you, can be you a little focus. unwieldy. Yeah. Yeah. And too few. It's then you just feel like you're not you're just telling the whole story. Yeah, you're telling a specific story. Yeah. Which is fine if you're attempting to tell. Right, but that I think specificity. It just seemed to make sense at the time to do it to, to tell the story this way, and I've really been feel like I've been vindicated in that choice since the book come, has come out because so many people, especially people in New Orleans have told me that their experiences mirrored exactly one of the experiences of one of the characters in the book, you know, and that that in that sense, these character stories really are the story of the whole city, in that I think anybody, no matter what their experience with Katrina, if they were from that region, will find one of these characters that sort of speaks to their own experience. And so that makes me really happy, and 
it's been interesting. I mean, a lot of people from that region have, have had a lot of trouble reading the book and have found that it brought them to tears and, um, you know, have had to put it down and pick it up again later or have to wait till the right moment to read it. And that's, that's a really um, profound thing to happen to a storyteller. It's, mm-hmm. it's nothing, that I've, nothing that I ever experienced before. Um, and it just makes me, like, that much more aware of how important this book is and was and hopefully continues to be. It's like a, a form of group therapy or something, I feel like. It's, well, it's, it's beyond me. I've put it out there, and now people take it onto their own. I, th- I think one of the things that a lot of people may not understand is the idea of trauma. Yeah. And what this means. I mean, it's not just surviving a storm. It's not just one thing. It's, it's a calamity of disasters and recovery from that. I mean, trauma can be a lot, and people don't, a lot of people don't really fully grasp what, you know, that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I, I mean, I don't personally either, though. It's something I've thought about a lot um, regarding, like, war and stuff and post-traumatic stress disorder and mm-hmm. thinking about issues like that. Um, there was a time when I was really interested in in exploring those issues, but um, I, I tried to get into that a little bit in AD with the, the Denise character, where she talks about sort of the, and I show just you know the, her progression emotionally in respond in responding and reacting to what happened, and how she really had all sorts of different responses of anger and sadness and despondency and hope and you know all of those different things, and they all kind of have to come at their own time for each mm-hmm. person. An interesting thing, I guess, from the art standpoint. Tell me about the colors. <laughs> That's not something you do just on a lark. Yeah. Um, well, just to explain to your listeners, um, for the most part, the book is told just in, t- in two-color format. Um, so I have, like, the, where the black line would ordinarily be is, is one color, and then I have sort of like a shading color, which is another color, and then I use white as well. So... Um, and I, I use some very unusual colors. Somebody um, referred to it as uh, as um, a Lucky Charms palette, <laughs> 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 um, which uh, isn't exactly the idea I was going for, but uh, it may be appropriate. But um, generally, I try to use the color in a way that that is helpful to sort of communicate the tone of things that I was going for in the book, but not too distracting and sort of thinking almost as a visual soundtrack to the events of the book. So I use, like, golden-type colors in the beginning of the book before the hurricane hits when we first meet the characters and when New Orleans is still sort of the city of, of jazz and, and good food and people enjoying themselves and, um, you know, try to convey that, that golden age sense of things. And then... When the storm is starting to build, I, I move more towards greenish and kind of sickly yellow color. That's sort of the way the sky looks as a hurricane is building. Uh, when the actual storm hits, I use blues and, and, and greens and very much water themes. And then near the end of the, of the main action, like when Denise and her family are at the convention center and it's just heat and humidity and, and violence, I use... A blood red color and a, another sort of sick yellow, yellowish color to kind of augment that feeling and convey some of that tension and oppressive heat that was happening. So I tried to uh, to just use a color in an interesting way, take advantage of the fact that I had the use of color, you know, as opposed to just black and white and gray, but um, not go all the way towards a full color sort of garish, yeah. you know, treatment because I didn't want that effect at all.
Another kind of artistic thing I notice is it doesn't feel stiff, which you can find, unfortunately, a lot of time with folks, certain work in PCAR stuff that, you know, a lot of stuff is so dependent on the uh, photoreal, not photorealism, right. but, you know, photo reference. Right. And I don't feel that in this. Like, it doesn't feel photo reference. It feels more oh, organic. Wow, that's really nice. Uh, I did use a lot of photo reference in the book, not not usually for characters and like mm-hmm. particular poses and stuff. Well, that's what that's what I'm referring to yeah. specifically. Yeah, I mean that's something I do stay away from because I think you're right. Like if you go down that route, you can get in trouble where you then start becoming reliant on using photography for every single pose and and um, just becoming a slave to that kind of way of doing things. And there are certain artists who do that and to me it's just um, not the way I want to work um, or you could yeah I mean you could cause a thing where you, some some people just don't know how to draw from a photograph and it ends up looking flat and stiff somehow even though it's exactly the way it looks Yeah, there's some kind of um, osmosis that your artwork has to go through to shift away from the pure photographic two dimensional surface to make it look organic so Maybe that's just um, a skill I've developed over the years or something, but um, I always try to make something have that sort of hand-drawn, um, humble intimacy that, that is just my art, you know, and um, if I ever find, like, it's too many straight lines or too perfect, then I know I've done something wrong, and <laughs> I try to fix it. <laughs> it's always, you know, it's something, like, you see, like, um, I know you were in... Um, Duplex Planet, and right. um, sometimes you'd see like artists would use that same face over like different artists would use the exact same face of like one of the right. old guys in the story. It's like just it's a comic. It it's d- a comic. It, it exactly. doesn't have to be exact. It's like the same pose, and it just right. feels stiff. It feels yeah. wrong, and it's like. It's a comic. I'm with you 100%. No, it's, <laughs> it's really true. I mean, there, there's a certain level where you just say, you know, you're, you're, you're taking maybe something based on life and you're making this thing into now a cartoon character, a comic book character, and they have that, that thing has its own integrity and in its existence and it's no longer dependent on the reality anymore. And as long as you draw your character now consistently so that the reader can tell who they are from panel to panel that's really much more important than the character actually looking like supposedly what they look like in real life. So, I mean, if you look at... uh, I have a little slideshow presentation that I've been doing when I've been taking the book on the road because you can't really read from a comic book the way you can read from a prose book. So I have this little visual presentation, and part of it is I show photographs of the actual characters that I used to base my characters on. And, you know, they look essentially like they're photographic real-life selves, but I'm not a, a person who's an expert at likenesses, so, you know, they're, they're not perfect. They're not, uh, you maybe wouldn't recognize them on the street if you, you know, were to just walk into one of them randomly, but uh, they do the job and they look like themselves when they're in the comic book, and that's really the most important thing. There we go. It's all about the comics. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what, are you, what are you working on now? Well, my next project, um, I'm very fortunate, is going to be with another book publisher with W.W. W. Norton this time, and it's a collaboration that I'm doing with a, uh, a national public radio um, radio host named Brooke Gladstone, who has a show called On the Media, which is a show that basically looks into all of the modern forms of communication, computers and the radio, TV, um, the internet, et cetera, et cetera, and the way that journalism is is um, um, filtered through those different mediums mm-hmm. and the future of all of them, how journalism works. Sh- they always say it's like how the sausage is made, in a sense. And it's a great show, which I've been a fan of myself because I just I just love the radio and I listen to NPR all day long. And Brooke, um, it turns out, is a comic book fan, and she had this idea of taking the essence of her show and, and doing it as a, a sort of pseudo-graphic novel, kind of in the vein of Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics. This would be kind of like Understanding Media in comic book form. Mm-hmm. And she contacted me late last year as I was winding things up with AD and 
proposed working together on this book, which is going to be called The Influencing Machine. And uh, I jumped at the idea. We had some meetings, talked about it, talked about what you know our vision would be for the book, and um, found an agent and shipped, shopped it around to some publishers, and uh, we had the good fortune of W.W. Norton wanting to publish it. So that'll be coming out um, the fall 2010, and I'm working on it now when I find time in between doing um, media stuff for AD. <laughs> and uh, it, it's going to be really great. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it because it's not about a major disaster or water or flooding. So I was going nice to say, break. it sounds like a light work com- in comparison for most people. It wouldn't be light, but right. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to study media and all this. It's like, ah, that's so relaxing. Yeah. Well, you know, she, it, it, it is It is definitely a, a, a nice break from the tragedy of, of AD, but even just on a general level, I think it is going to be really interesting, and it's going to be weird, you know, but, like, I mean that in a really good way. I don't think that there's ever been a book like this, quite like this project and it'll be a mixture of comics and prose and illustrations and Brooke is going to be an, a character who's going to walk you through this experience and she'll be appearing in all sorts of different historical eras and dressed in funny different ways and she's got a great um, mind for comics and uh, makes some interesting connections between the way radio works on your brain and the way comics work on your brain so I think it's going to be really cool Sounds like something I could learn from Yeah <laughs> Everybody <laughs> Reserve your copy now. There we go. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Um, it's really, always really good conversation, good questions. It's always fun to talk comics, right? Yes, exactly. From the north, and it started to rain. It rained real hard, and it rained for a real long time. Six feet of water in the streets of Evangeline. The river rose all day, the river rose all night. Some people got lost in the flood Some people got away all right River had busted through Cleared down the plaque of mine Six feet of water in the streets of Evangeline Louisiana Louisiana Trying to wash us away. They're trying to wash us away. Oh, Louisiana. Louisiana. They're trying to wash us away. They're trying to wash us away. President Coolidge come down in a railroad train. Little fat man with a notepad in his hand President said, little fat man Oh, isn't it a shame What the river had done to this poor farmer's land Oh, Louisiana Louisiana You're trying to wash us away Trying to wash us away Oh, Louisiana Oh, Louisiana Trying to wash us away Oh, Lord Trying to wash us away Trying to wash us away Trying to wash us away Yeah 